You need a Bible this morning. The passage that we are talking about is James chapter 2, verse 14 through the end of the chapter, verse 26. These are some of the most debated verses in the Bible, which is always fun when you get to look at a passage that people disagree about and argue about. And if you've been here for this series over the last few weeks, you have heard these two numbers repeated over and over and over again as we've talked about the book of James. 108 verses, 59 commands, 59 imperatives, 59 things that we are supposed to actually do as followers of Jesus. Those two numbers explain why many people like the book of James. There's some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. There's some passages that are hard to to wrap your mind around. What is the doctrinal, the theological, the philosophical argument here? And you have to kind of get in the weeds and, and look at grammar and look at vocabulary. And there's some things that can be challenging. James, for the most part, doesn't fit into that category. James is just kind of cut and dried, black and white. He just looks you in the face and says, look, this is what you need to do. You need to do X, Y, and Z. 59 commands. And people like James because he's straightforward in that sense. This passage is probably the exception to that rule. And the challenge in this passage is that some of what James says here seems to go completely against what we read in other places in the New Testament. I learned this personally, in a very real way, when I was 17 years old. A group of guys in my high school youth group decided that we were going to start a a high school guys Bible study. And we had a sweet lady in our church. Uh, At the time, it seemed like she was about 90 years old, but she's still alive, so I don't think she was that old back then. She said, one of her uh, grandsons was in that group, she said, you can come meet at my house, I'll fix you food. She had a pool table, we could play pool, and we had Bible study there. And uh, so we set it all up. And the very first week, I volunteered to teach. Now, this is just a group of high school guys getting together. I could have talked about anything in the world. I could have gone like John 3.16. You could have gone Psalm 23. But in my mind, I said, I think I'm going to go with something from the book of James. How about James chapter 2? And I said it out loud to everybody. We're going to do James 2. Then I went home to study James 2. And I thought, ah, man. I can remember to this day, this is the first actual Bible study or anything that I ever taught in my whole life. I can remember walking into that first night of Bible study thinking, I have no idea what this passage means. And I'm about to teach on it. I'm about to sit down with these guys and try to make sense of it. And if you're ever in that situation, you can always just read the text. Just read the text and then just look at them and say, this is what it says. And then if you can, throw in a poem or a story or something. doesn't even have to connect. People don't, they'll think, wow, that was such a great story. I didn't even understand how it connected that. He's really smart. And then you say, let's pray, and then you're done. So I hope this morning is a little bit better than that. I hope. Let's start with this admission, okay? Just be honest up front. On the surface, Paul, the Apostle Paul, and James, the brother of Jesus, appear to disagree about faith in justification. They appear on the surface to say exactly the opposite thing about faith and our justification before God. And so I'm going to put the verses side by side for you to see it. The Apostle Paul, Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Seems pretty clear 
until you get to James. And James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. On the surface, you look at that and you say, these are two guys who completely disagree. And to be completely honest with you, there are Bible quote-unquote scholars you can look up in Romans, commentaries on Romans or commentaries on James, and they will tell you this very thing. They will say, look, these are two great guys, Paul and James. They're both salt-of-the-earth folks. They just disagreed about this point. I don't think they disagreed, although on the surface that looks like a disagreement, like a contradiction. Here's another complication is they both refer to Abraham to prove their point. So Paul says this in Romans 4, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul says, look, Genesis 15 says it very clearly. You can look it up on your own. Genesis 15. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteous. He was justified when he believed by faith, not by works. So Paul says we're justified by faith alone, not our works, and Abraham is proof of that. Well, here comes James alongside him and he says, look, we're not justified by our faith alone, but by our works. And proof, you expect him to pull somebody different out of the hat, but he says is Abraham. And he says this, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He's not quoting Genesis 15, but you fast forward to Genesis 22 and he says, look, this story is the proof that he was justified not by faith alone, but by his works. On the surface, it looks like a contradiction. We just want to acknowledge that. The rest of the morning, we're going to work through this contradiction and come to the point where we see it's really not one at all. And the beginning of that process is for you and I to stop. We're studying James and to remind ourselves of the context of what's going on. So some of you were here last week. This will make sense. Some of you weren't, weren't here. I just want you to see it quickly. If you rewind to the beginning of James chapter 2, look in your Bible, James chapter 2, verse 1. This is what we talked about last week. The first part of James 2 is going to help us understand the second half of James 2. And if you just rip them apart, you'll never be able to make sense of either passage. So in James 2, verse 1, he says, My brothers, show, here's a command, show no partiality. Don't show favoritism. And in James's mind, when you show partiality or favoritism to another person based on an external, ignorant, foolish evaluation you make of that person, James says that's a problem if you keep reading in chapter 2 because it's a violation of the second greatest commandment. First greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second greatest commandment is like it, Jesus said, you love your neighbor as yourself. And James says if you show partiality, you're breaking, keep this in your brain, the second greatest commandment. Don't do it. And the specific he brings up in the early part of chapter 2 is poverty. He talks about a poor person coming in and not being received well and not being treated well. Okay, Fast forward to the second part of James chapter 2. All those thoughts are still in James' mind. It's not like he just cuts it off where we divide the passage and that has nothing to say about what we're about to read about. He's going to bring up the issue of poverty again. At the back half of James 2, he's going to talk about people who are poor possibly coming into your church and how you treat those people. And he's talking, he's thinking about this idea of the second greatest commandment. That's still in the back of his mind. This idea that God calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. When he talks about faith and work, faith and works, 
He's thinking back to the two greatest commandments. And this is really the question in James' mind. Two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. James is really boiling it down to this. Is it possible in any scenario, circumstance, or situation, is it possible to actually love God genuinely, truly, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength without also loving your neighbor as yourself? Is that possible? Is it possible to keep the first greatest commandment and not keep the second? And the answer that he's going to come to in this passage is absolutely no. You can't do that. You can't just divide those two commandments as if they have nothing to do with each other. Those two commandments fit together. That brings us to the big idea of the passage. It's very simple. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. One of the ways you can study the Bible and look for the big ideas and the main points is to pay attention for things that get repeated in a passage. James says this thing three times in the verses that we're about to read. He says it in verse 17. He says it again in verse 20. Then he says it again at verse 26. He's given you a clue. Faith without works is dead. He's given you a clue that's going to help you understand how to take what he says and what Paul says and realize that they actually do fit together. So let's read the passage, and then we're going to walk through and talk about some of the the specific parts. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to a passage that people debate and argue about and and agonize over and struggle with. We pray for clarity this morning. We pray that you would help us to understand James in the context of his own writing Help us to understand what the Spirit inspired this man to write down. Help us to make sense of how it fits with what we read in the rest of the New Testament. Father, give us wisdom not only to understand these things, but to let them sink into our hearts. 
Father, convict us this morning if we have misunderstood or misapplied the gospel. Father, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I've given you an outline in your notes, and I just want to walk quickly through the outline so that you see the different parts of this passage. And I think when you walk through it slowly, it makes a lot of sense. And after we do that, I want to remind you of a couple of things that you need to remember as you make sense of James chapter 2, and then we'll wrap up with a few final thoughts to try to make it all very, very clear. So let's look at the outline of James 2, 14 to 26. It starts with a question and an answer. If you miss this part of the passage and you just jump down to the end of chapter 2 and you just get in the weeds about Abraham and Rahab and everything he says down there, if you miss this part, you'll never make sense of the rest of the passage. You've got to understand the question that he's raising because if you don't understand the question that he's raising, you'll never understand the answer that he gives. Here's the question, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, If someone says he has faith but does not have works, here's the question. Can that faith save him? That's the question being answered in this passage. Suppose there's a person and they claim to keep the first commandment. They say, oh, I love God. I love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's the most important thing in the world to me. But they don't love their neighbor as themselves, even in simple ways, right in front of them. Opportunities that God puts right in their path. They refuse to do that. Can that kind of faith save a person? Can you be saved by claiming to love God, love Jesus, and not caring a flip about the neighbors that God has put into your life? And his answer is in verse 17. It's pretty clear. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith, commandment one, without works, greatest commandment number two, is dead. In the middle of the passage in verse 20, he says it's useless, doesn't have any value. And then at the end of the passage, he comes back again and says that kind of faith is dead. In the book of James, we mentioned this right out of the gate week one. James kind of operates with two views of faith or two ideas of faith, that there can be different kinds of faith. On the one hand, there's a kind of faith that knows all the right answers, that's very orthodox, that could pass a systematic theology exam, that believes that there's only one God, and he says, that's great that you have that kind of faith. Fantastic. There's another kind of faith that actually plays out. It's why we've called the series Faith That Works. Not just faith up in your head, but faith that actually translates into the way that you live your life. And in James' mind, not all faith is created equal, if we could say it that way. Some faith saves and some faith doesn't. Some faith is real and some faith is not. And the question being asked, you've got to get this through your head. Verse 14, can that faith save him? James is not saying, how can we be saved? Paul answers that question. Paul says we can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That's how. James is not asking that question. He's asking the question, what kind of faith saves He knows that it's through faith, but he wants to distinguish all these people talking about faith. Let's make sure we're talking about real faith, saving faith, genuine faith, faith that works. Can this particular kind of faith save a person? Is it real or is it not? He's not asking the question, how can we be saved? He's asking the question, what kind of faith actually saves us? That's verse 14. If you miss it, 
You don't make sense of anything else that follows. So he begins with a a question and answer. Then he raises an objection and a response. And you'll notice in verse 18 there's some quotation marks. Those quotation marks represent the argument that he's sort of entertaining. Okay, James says, he backs up and he says, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, you have faith and I have works. You have your way and I have my way. You know, we're both religious people. We're both trying to do the right thing here. We're all sincere in what we believe. And really, do we have to get so nitpicky about what kind of faith actually saves? Do we really need to to define that and drill down on that? Can't we just say your way is good and my way is good and potato and potato and tomato and tomato and whatever you feel? Like, you do it your way. Be be sincere in that. And I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to be okay in this. And the real issue is, can't we just separate faith and works? Can't they be like two separate, distinct things? James says, well, yes, you can separate them. You can separate them. And you can be like the demons. If you want to separate your faith and your works, that's fine. But all that does is elevate you to demonic status. Remember the opening question, does that faith save? What kind of faith saves? And he's saying this kind of faith clearly does not save. It just puts you on par with the demons. The demons are orthodox. They know who God is. Read the Gospels. They're the only ones on the backside of the resurrection who had any clue who Jesus was at all. Every time Jesus shows up, the demons fall down and they cry out, what are you going to do? Are you going to destroy us? We know who you are. You're the Holy One from God. They know who Jesus is. They would bust the curve on a systematic theology exam at seminary. They'd get a a hundred. They'd ace it. They wouldn't miss anything. And, James says, they're at least terrified of God because they shudder. They fear Him. So yes, you can separate your faith and your works if you want to play that game. James says that just puts you in a, a category with the demons. So he raises this objection And he gives his response. Last, he gives his argument and some examples. And I just want you to remember what is the main argument of this passage. Here it is. It's verse 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's verse 20. You foolish person, faith apart from works is useless. Verse 26. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That's the main argument. And then he brings up some examples. Right? He's asking the question, not how did Abraham get saved, not how did Rahab get saved. He's asking the question, what kind of faith saved them? What did it look like? How would we describe it? Was it the kind of faith where you separate faith from works? He says, no, 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 no. Think about Abraham. He knows the part about Genesis fifteen six where Abraham believes the Lord and God counts it to him as righteousness. He quotes that verse. He knows it. Abraham was made right with God by faith. But he also looks later in Abraham's life. That was very early in his life. He looks later to Genesis 22 and he says, that that relationship that began in chapter 15, it was brought to fulfillment or to completion. It was put on display in Genesis 22 with the sacrifice of Isaac. When he obeyed the Lord, and it was very difficult to do so, his faith produced something that you could see. It was faith that worked. 
Same thing is true of Rahab. And he doesn't go into as much detail about Rahab, but you can go back and read about her in Joshua. When the spies show up in the city, Rahab meets him and she says, we know all about your God. We've heard. We know what he did in Egypt. We know he parted the sea. We know all about the plagues. We know that he's the true Lord. All these people want to fight you and wall up the city. I don't want anything to do with that. She had faith, and that faith worked, and she saved the spies. So that's the argument, and those are the examples that he brought up. Let me mention a couple of things you've got to remember as you try to make sense of James 2. Okay? Three things to remember. Number one, James and Paul agreed about the gospel. They agreed about the gospel. And I just want to put up on the screen again these two verses. I'm not trying to gloss this over. I'm not trying to pretend this isn't here. Look at them. Paul says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Faith, not works. And James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith. I understand what that looks like. I just want you to try to put the whole picture together when you think about the New Testament. Acts 15. We won't read it this morning. You can go back and look at it. Acts 15. It was the first ever church council. All the bigwigs got together in Jerusalem. The gospel had going out to Gentile peoples, and they were trying to figure out, how is it that these people are really going to be saved? And they all got together. Peter was there. Paul was there. James was there. At the end of that meeting, they all put their hands in the middle and said, one, two, three, break. They all agreed There was no division, no no disagreement between them. Later in the book of Acts, Paul gets done with his third missionary journey. The first thing he does when he goes to Jerusalem, you can look at it in the book of Acts, is he goes to visit James. And James doesn't say, hey, you still preaching that shoddy gospel? And Paul doesn't say, oh, you still telling everybody they got to work for it, Bubba? They hug it out, and they say, hey, I'm so glad you're here. We missed you. Tell me about the trip. Tell me about the people that got saved. They agreed about the gospel. You see this same thing on display in Galatians 1 and 2. Galatians is a nasty letter. Paul wrote the letter to people who were denying the gospel, and he said some really hard things, some things you can't even really talk about in mixed company. He was really ticked off at those people, and in that letter, do you know what Paul says? He says, man, James is a stand-up guy. He's a pillar of the church. I've got fellowship with that guy. We agree on the gospel. I went to Jerusalem, and, and we were friends, and we're buddies, and we agree on how a person is saved. There was no division between these guys. These guys were asking and answering very different questions. Paul is focused on the question, how can you be saved? And the answer is, Only by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Faith alone. James is coming right alongside Paul. Not fighting him, but like a tag team partner. And James is saying, okay, I agree with that. Now let's ask this question. What kind of faith will save you? What does it look like? Is it faith that can be separated from works? Absolutely not. That kind of faith is dead and useless. So that brings us to the next point here. They both refer to Abraham. They knew their Bibles. It's not like one of them was confused and the other was on point. They both understand the key to this debate is going back to Abraham. And they both quote chapter 15 in Genesis. 
where Abraham believes the Lord and it's counted to him as righteousness. James just comes alongside with another story and he says that faith that began in chapter 15, that faith that justified him, was brought to completion or fulfillment at the sacrifice of Isaac. That was faith that worked. It wasn't just Abraham saying, yes, I believe the Lord, but I'm going to do my own thing. It was Abraham saying, I believe the Lord, and I'm going to follow him in obedience no matter what it costs. So they both go back to Abraham. And lastly, they're addressing different situations. This is what we've been saying all along. The Apostle Paul is saying, how does a person become right in God's sight? It's by faith. James is saying, tell me about that faith. What does it look like? Describe it to me. What kind of faith is it that actually saves a person? That's the question up in verse 14. So I'm a visual person. I try to make sense of things visually whenever I can. That helps me to understand concepts that are a little bit abstract. So at the bottom of your notes and up on the screen, I'm going to give you some formulas. Okay, And the point of this little exercise is to to walk away understanding only one quote-unquote gospel message actually saves. We're going to work through some false gospels and then land on the true gospel. So here is one option for a gospel that you will hear today in the United States of America. It's the gospel that says your works lead to salvation. That's a very American idea. Your good works will lead to your salvation. Be a nice person. Be kind to animals. Chip in 20 bucks every now and then when you go to church. Do good things. And when you die, you get to go to heaven. My guess is you've heard this exact gospel preached at funerals before, where somebody stood up on the platform and said, Oh, Billy Bob. Billy Bob was salt of the earth, man. He would have given you the shirt off his back. And he never said a bad word about nobody. We're so glad he's in a better place. And the idea that you walk away with is he was a good guy. He gave people his clothes. He didn't say cuss words. Therefore, he's in heaven. That gospel is works lead to salvation. The book of James just blows that out of the water. We talked about it last week, James 2, when James says, if you transgress the law once, you become a lawbreaker, and you need somebody else to make you right with God. So we're going to scratch this gospel off the notes, right? X it out, scratch it off, black it out, whatever you want to do, make it clear, this is not a gospel that saves. James has already told us that. We're lawbreakers. We can't be good enough to earn our way with God. Here's gospel Number two, this one's tricky. Faith plus your works result in salvation. Okay? The first one, works lead to salvation, that's like just a typical American idea. Be a nice person, you go to heaven when you die. The second one is a typical American churchgoer. Okay? I'm not trying to be mean to anybody. We're just going to be clear about this. This second one, your faith plus your works lead to your salvation. This would be the gospel preached by our Roman Catholic friends. This would be the gospel preached by our Mormon friends. This would be the gospel, although these three groups are very different, this would be the gospel preached by our Jehovah's Witness friends. This would be the gospel preached by many misguided 
Southern Baptists. You need to have faith in God, believe in Jesus, and then you need to do this whole list of things and don't do this whole other list of things, right? There's do's and don'ts. And if you take your faith and you combine it with doing these two things, then the end result of that is you'll have salvation. And look, when you read the book of James, that sounds kind of close. It's got all the things James is talking about, right? James is talking about faith. James is talking about works. James is talking about salvation. Verse 14, can this faith save him? It's got all the right pieces in there. The problem is the equation isn't balanced right. And so we're going to scratch this one off. We're going to say, no, 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 no. According to Paul and according to James, our works don't play any role in this, in leading to our salvation. So we scratch it off. Here's option three. Faith leads to salvation. I have pastor friends in Odessa who would stake their life on number three. They would say, that's it right there. Don't go any further. All you have to do is pray a prayer. Repeat after me. If you pray that prayer and you mean it in the moment, then you're saved forever no matter what. Some of our Baptist friends would, would quote this gospel, faith leads to salvation, and they would throw around this idea of once saved, always saved, and they would say what they mean when they say once saved, always saved is you pray the prayer, you're saved, it doesn't matter what comes after that. That's it. You're just, you, you pray it and you're saved. It's a very decisionistic approach to salvation. It's a very mechanical response to salvation. You do X, Y, and Z. In this case, it's not works, but it's expressing this faith, and the result is salvation. That's all that matters. Nothing else matters. Now listen, some of you are antsy because I kind of poke fun at once saved, always saved. You're like, oh, why does he have to do that? I don't think there's a shred of biblical evidence, not a shred, that a genuine believer, genuine, can lose their salvation. Not a shred. I'll argue with it until I'm blue in the face and then I'll keep arguing some more. However, I don't think there's anything biblical about the notion that you can just pray a prayer and then you're good no matter what. That's what James is talking about here. He's going back to these two greatest commands and he's saying, okay, suppose they love God. They say they love God. They, they, they can answer all the right questions. They just don't love their neighbor. Can that faith save them? And he says, absolutely not. That faith is dead and useless and dead. Doesn't save. That's not how it works. And what's missing in that formula is what James is talking to us about in this passage. James is not saying, how can a person be saved? He's asking the question, he's answering it. What does that faith look like? Describe it to me. Scratch the third one off, and here's the final formula. The gospel that saves. Your faith leads to salvation and works. That's what James is describing. That's what Paul describes in every one of his epistles where he talks about faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. It's the idea that your faith leads to salvation. You are made right with God when you put your faith in Jesus. And the reformers had a great way of putting this. Martin Luther and Calvin and all those guys, they used to say it like this. We are justified by faith alone. Faith alone, sola fide. But... 
The faith that justifies is never alone. It's faith alone. There's nothing else on that left side of the equation. You don't put your good works and try to tack them onto what Jesus has done for you. You're only trusting in what Jesus has done. And when you truly, genuinely do that, the result is you will be saved. You'll be secure. Jesus can hold on to his people. John 10, he's not going to lose any of them. And the God who works salvation in your life will work salvation out of your life. And there will be works. And that's what James is saying. What kind of faith saves? It's not just this empty, vacuous faith of keeping command one and forgetting command two. But it's faith that works. Look, when we take the Lord's Supper, this is what we're celebrating. Please do not take the Lord's Supper this morning or any morning with the mindset of, I'm taking this because I've been good enough this week to do it. Or I haven't been so bad that I need to not participate. That's back up on number two. You taking your faith in your works and thinking that's going to lead to salvation. That's not what the Lord's Supper is about. The Lord's Supper is us saying, God, you're a holy God. You're holy. And we're sinful people. We're lawbreakers. The book of James makes that clear. We have broken your law. And we need somebody to make us right with you. And that somebody is Jesus Christ. He came to seek and to save the lost. He did it by living a life of perfect obedience. And by dying on the cross, taking the penalty for our sins. Our response when your spirit gives us life and your spirit draws us to yourself is putting faith in Jesus. And it is faith alone that makes us right with you. And the result of that is we gather together as your people and we take the bread. And we don't take the bread saying, you know, I've been a pretty good person this week. You take the bread and you're saying, the body of Jesus bore the punishment for my sins on the cross. He paid it. And we take the cup You don't take the cup saying, well, I can drink this because I didn't say any bad words this week. You take the cup saying, the blood of Jesus was shed for a lawbreaker like me. And the only way that I can be made right with God is through what Jesus has done by trusting in that. I'm made righteous by faith alone. And we take the bread and we take the cup and we remind ourselves, just Jesus who saved us is coming back for us. And until then, we're called to be people, not just who love God, but who also love our neighbor. Command one, God is the most important thing. We love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus is the center of our world. We also love our neighbor as ourself. We have faith that works. Not working for our salvation, but working because God has worked salvation in us.